The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. So one of the things we thought we would do tonight is just take a couple of moments to share um, an exhortation to you from which you can share this with others and, God willing, we can put this into practice. The Advent season uh, provides a, a very significant opportunity for us in the mission that God has given to us as his church. Our mission is, of course, that we are to make disciples. And as you make disciples, there are uh, four ministries that are embedded in that great commission. Jesus, of course, had discipled for three years, and what had he done? Well, he had evangelized, he had brought the disciples to himself, he had enfolded them, and he had not only enfolded them, but he had taught them, and he had equipped them. And then the Bible tells us when he met them to give them the great commission on the mountain by the, uh, in the Galilee, it was at that moment that it says they worshipped him. And that is exaltation. So I hope you kind of see that. There are four ministries that are necessary and that are the testimony of discipleship. One ministry is, I like to put it this way, is the ministry of upreach, which is worship. The ministry of outreach, which is evangelism. The ministry of inreach, which is loving one another. And the ministry of downreach, which is learning or discipleship. Now, you see those embedded right in the Great Commission, don't you? Because what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, make disciples. He says, I want you to make disciples. How do you make disciples? And he gives these three participial phrases that modify this imperative verb, make disciples. Going, that's evangelism. Baptizing, that's enfolding and bringing into the body of Christ the people of God, the believer, and their household as they were baptized and added into the covenant community. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that would be discipleship. That would be learning and teaching that's going on. And then here's the end product. As you see, the disciples, after having been evangelized and folded and equipped for three years, now instead of falling short of the glory of God, now their delight is to give glory to God. So when they see Jesus, even though some were dealing with doubts, the Bible says when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, I bring out those four ministries because I think the Advent season gives us an opportunity to engage those four ministries uh, in a very profound way and, in fact, in an easier way than at other times during the year. For what, for in, in God's kind providence, as much as we see the deconstruction of our culture in many ways through secular progressivism and theological progressivism, as we see that taking place still and during the Advent season, there is this Christmas. And this Christmas that people do 
because they're looking for something and they think the holiday will do it. And of course, we know the holiday is there to tell you about the one who came to do it, who alone can do it, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we have a cultural bridge available to us. So what we do, of course, is on the Lord's Day morning, we have this Advent series in place uh, that will be in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, got started this morning. And then we move, and then we, uh, and we'll work our way through that each Sunday. Uh, next Sunday will be the Wonderful Counselor, the next Sunday the Mighty God, these titles of Jesus, the third Sunday, uh, the next Sunday will be, um, uh, will be the <laughs> Everlasting Father, and then finally will be, of course, the Prince of Peace on Christ Sunday. So we'll work our way through that this, uh, this week. So that's what will be happening on the Lord's Day morning. But we also take our Sunday evening fellowship of worship to use it for various uh, opportunities that we don't normally have the opportunity to do. So this coming uh, Sunday night, you'll have the uh, children's choirs. And, you know, there's a whole group of people you know out there that are very vulnerable to an invitation to a children's choir from which they will not only hear the gospel sung, but the gospel will be shared. And that, of course, is the night that we give the diaconal gifts to our covenant children. So that's a night of celebration, of worship. It's a night for opportunity for evangelism. It's a night for building community and folding. And it's a night for just furthering our walk with the Lord as we keep building on what we're learning through the Advent Sermon Series and keep doing that and developing. Then, of course, you've got uh, the next Lord's Day. Uh, which is um, it, which is this uh, wonderful presentation of the ballet ministry that will take place that Sunday night. And again, there is a whole group of people out there that that kind of a bridge into their life, they are more than willing to walk through it, and they also will see and hear the gospel message. And then, then the next, which I cannot wait, this, John, is this is our fourth year of Hallelujah or the third? Fourth year. So this... This is the third year. Okay, well, I mean, it's so much fun, I thought we had four. Uh, this, it's just an extraordinary presentation where all of these wonderfully talented and committed um, brothers and sisters in the Lord have been working. So the choir, the instrumentalist, the soloist, the orchestra, the ballet, the drama, and all of that's put together to bring our focus to Christ. It's, for me, it's aspirational. For me, it's inspirational. But it's also evangelistic and uh, where the gospel will again be displayed and shared. And um, so uh, so as I and then and then, of course, our Christmas Eve services this year, we've got one at three, one at five and then one at um, uh, the communion service at 11, which is our acapella service. And all of those are candlelight communion services. And then we will have Christ Sunday. Now, this year, because of where Christmas Eve falls, uh, we're going to kind of use Christmas Eve uh, as our our stand-in Sunday night service. So we're just going to have one service, that Christ Sunday. And uh, it's going to be a little longer one. And uh, so, But there's not going to be the congregational communities, the Sunday schools, or, or, any, or a Sunday night service. It'll just be everything coming together for a service that morning. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the time is 10. Is it 10 o'clock? Benny, you don't sound real confident on that. 
10 o'clock, okay. So if everybody comes at 10, we'll all be here, right? Okay, all right. So it's at 10 o'clock, and we're going to have a wonderful time of worship and praise to the Lord. And then, of course, enjoying the rest of the uh, of that day together as families. Now, if I could just take this one step further. So how do you take these? these oh, and my goodness, how can I leave the walk through nativity out? Uh, those are three nights of which we can just bring people to see and hear the gospel as it is portrayed. And I'll, this year we'll be back to a walkthrough, not a drive-through, praise the Lord. We'll be to a walk, back to a walkthrough. And uh, we're not going to do the, you know, the everybody get in that one room where you got about 3,000 people in that fellowship, Paul. We're not going to do that this year. But what we are going to do uh, is um, I'm going to be standing at the end when they leave the resurrection scene and be able to greet people and you will have some literature for them as they make their way home. So uh, that is a great opportunity as well. So if you would think about this, so how can I, now think of it this way, how can I personally, and how can I personally with my family, and how can I personally with my family and my Sunday school community, how is it that we can take advantage of this? Now I'll confess to you, I am... If we are committed to the mission of making disciples through the ministries that he has ordained, I see no reason why we can't, out of a love to Christ and a love to others, number one, want to be in such events to praise the Lord ourselves. But number two, to take advantage of this for people to come and hear the gospel. And so what I would encourage you to do is to consider how you can do that. One of the things that can help you in your personal and family are the Advent devotionals. We have three of them. Just go take a look at what's there and which one fits for you. The Advent devotionals for you or for your family that you can make use of. We've got three wonderful uh, devotionals that are available to you. Secondly, secondly, um, how can we as a family prepare for the Advent sermon series on Sunday morning? Thirdly, how can we personally and as a family take these events and who in our neighborhood where we work, our school, our, the teams, all of that, who is it that we can bring to see and hear the gospel? And what I would suggest is one other thing, and this is something that we've done as a family in the past, and that let's say you take someone and say, hey, I'd like to make a Christmas gift. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to take you to see Hallelujah or go to walk through Nativity or whatever it is. And then afterwards, man, let's go out and have a cup of coffee and let's have a dessert together. And then you just begin to ask them some questions. Well, what did you think of and what did you get from? And, what, and just start to ask questions and let them talk and see what is opened up for you to share the gospel. Folks, I'm grateful that in, while I, there are many battles to fight for Christ as a church that's going to be committed to being on mission, on message, and in ministry, one of the things I'm grateful for is that is still this residual opportunity in our culture. But yet, everyone that is open to these moments during the Advent Christmas season, they're actually looking, most of them, not all of them, but some of them, many of them, are looking at the experiences, hoping this year there'll be a gift, there'll be a party, there'll be an experience, there will be something that happens that actually will minister to their soul. And none of those things can minister to the soul. But the one who does minister to the soul 
is the one you can introduce them to. So think about it, pray about it, and make it a project, not only personally, but as a family. Start thinking with your children. Who do we know and who do you know that we can reach? Which one of these events would be the most likely for them to respond? And how can we follow up with them? So that would be my encouragement is don't lose this opportunity for us to reach people and plant the seeds of the gospel of the kingdom of our Savior. Well, we will be able to share the gospel because there was a choir of angels that proclaimed the gospel on that Christmas Eve. And there is a wonderful verse that we are able to, I mean, a wonderful song that we're able to sing at Christmas that so lifts up this message. Hark the heralds, away in a manger and angels we have heard on high. So let's sing to the praise of God. Would you please stand? Well, uh, unannounced and unsolicited. I kind of like to listen to Daniel anytime I can, <laughs> and uh, thankful we, we still have some CDs, I believe, in the bookstore uh, that are there, some of his wonderful uh, work, and uh, what a blessing it is. Daniel and I were just, uh, we're just remembering. We both came to Briarwood the same year, and we've enjoyed ministering together, and I have so benefited from his love for Christ, his love for worship and his gifts and skills that are used uh, for the Lord. So thank you again, Daniel. Look forward to this Christmas season serving the Lord together. If you've got your copies of God's Word, would you turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3? And just a couple of words of introduction. First of all, Stephen, I want you to know it's a, it's a great privilege to preach the sermon uh, of your at your ordination, and I praise the Lord for it. It's been a great privilege to watch the Lord at work in your life throughout these years. You came, of course, into our student ministry, and then uh, and then moved to the um, graduates and career ministry, and overseeing that part of the ministry of our congregation, and to see your love for Christ, your love for the Lord's people. And now to see your um, your work through the seminary uh, coming to, having come to fruition, and then the trials of presbytery, whereby we are now here to bring that to the consummation of an ordination and installation of Stephen into the gospel ministry. Now, one of the things, if you keep your Bibles there, First Timothy chapter three. But one of the things uh, that will be attendant to Stephen's ministry, like any other gospel ministry is this, and that is you are now being put in the position of leadership, not just leadership in general, but ordained leadership. And that is the authority of the church is being entrusted to you. Another phrase that our Savior uses is the keys of the kingdom. The, uh, the ministry of the Word of God, the discipline of the church, the sacraments of the church, all of those things now come under the purview of those who have been ordained to the ministry, ruling elders, and then very precisely in terms of the gospel ministry of preaching and uh, leadership is the teaching elders in a church. And that's what Stephen is being ordained to. 
So I thought I would just try to give a little bit of insight in terms of this matter of leadership. It's something that has consumed me my whole life uh, because I have seen the importance of leadership as a historian, and I've seen the importance of leadership from just looking at the Word of God itself and how when God does things, He raises up leaders. Just go check your Bible. Every time God gets ready to do something, He raises up a leader. And by the way, He not only raises up a leader, if you don't mind, I'm going to be a good Presbyterian at this point, He raises up a plurality of leadership. And that's very important because with any one leader's strengths, you also get their weaknesses, which is why a plurality of leadership is crucial for the benefits of God's people and for the benefits of the mission that Christ has entrusted to us. One of the most amazing moments in the history of the church was the Reformation itself. What a glorious time. Well, what did God do? He raised up a reformer. His name was Martin Luther, who, if I'm not mistaken, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Church at Wittenberg, if I'm not mistaken, he was 33 years old. And John Calvin was four. And Zwingli was seven. And so here was a leader stepping forward, and the Lord, through his leadership, was surfacing other leaders that would step forward. And then when the Lord put them into ministry, he didn't send them alone. Even a Luther, with all of the multiple talents that he had, his ministry was wonderfully enhanced by Melanchthon. Or a Calvin, my goodness, (laughs) What an amazing pastor, theologian, preacher, uh, leader of Christ's church in the Reformation. But Calvin had Beza, Theodore Beza, and and Zwingli had Bullinger. Knox, John Knox had Goodman, Christopher Goodman, and that... A Thomas Cranfer in the English Reformation had a Hugh Latimer and a Nicholas Ridley. That God is continually to raising up leaders. And then when you go back into the Scripture, you see God raising up a leader. But you'll notice that that leader is never alone. And when they leave and God calls them home, they don't leave a vacuum. They leave leaders to take their place. So when a Moses is called to the completion of his task, there's a Joshua and a Caleb that were not only with him but now left along with the elders of the tribes that had been established. And then you've got someone like King David, this man after God's own heart. And when the Lord called him home, there were three chief men and 30 mighty men that had surrounded him, that were ready to carry on. And then when you have an Elijah, Elijah, when he is taken to be with the Lord, leaves behind the school of prophets and all of those that he had trained to carry on ministry when he had finished his ministry. We go to the New Testament, and you see an apostle Peter, and you see the apostle Peter nurturing a young man named John Mark who assists him in the writing of First Peter and Second Peter and then goes back to, us, to assist the ministry of Paul. 
Or you see the Apostle Paul. And when the Apostle Paul goes to be with the Lord, left behind is a Timothy, a Titus, a Silas, a Luke, Aquila, Priscilla, leading women, uh, and as they were referred to, and others. But of course, the greatest example we have of this matter of leadership for to learn from and to observe and 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 model is our Savior. I think I can safely say this. I haven't done the full analysis, so I would um, drive a stake in the ground on my observation in the Scripture. But I think I can safely say to you that if you go and catalog and try to calendar the life and ministry of Jesus as it is depicted and described and affirmed in the narratives of the Gospels, if you do that, you will see that most of his time was given not simply to discipleship, but the discipleship of leaders. It seemed the bigger the crowd did not call for his time. I mean, that's the way. If you were going to change, if you were going to set in motion something that would turn the world upside down in 25 years, what would you do? Well, I know what I'd do. I'd go get a pamphlet. I'd get an airbrush photo of me. It'd take a lot of airbrushing to put me on there. And then I'd get somebody to endorse it. And I'd go rent big places and draw all these people and multitudes to it. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But what did Jesus do for three years? Seventy, twelve, three. And the smaller the group, the more time he gave to it. And the more intentional time he gave to it. Here's why. Jesus has already taught us this. Leadership works. And I make no qualifications. Leadership works. But I will expound on it. Leadership always works. Bad leadership, bad results. Good leadership, good results. Jesus gives us a word picture of that, doesn't he? He says, if the blind lead the blind, what happens? It works. They both fall in the pit. When all is said and done, the pupil becomes like his teacher, the servant like his master. Leadership works. Now, what we need is not simply one ordained to the office of ordained leadership in the church. And that office has power assigned to it. Not the power of the state. The state has lethal power. Not the power of the family. But the power of the church. Probably best picture. Power of the state, the sword. Uh, the power of the family. <laughs> Let me go ahead and tell you what it was in my home. It was the rod when I was growing up. There's the power of the family to curb that which is wrong and promote that which is right. But in the church, the power is the towel. God's leaders are servant leaders who wash feet. If you come over to my office... I have something that's there. 
Again, my study is at home, so I try to meet people there in that office, and where, there where I meet people. You'll see that, um, just in case you were wondering, after listening to some of my sermons, I have been to seminary. And there's my Westminster Seminary uh, degree. I think that's what it is. It's written in Latin, and I am not very adept at Latin, but they tell me that is an affirmation of my Master of Divinity. So that's there. And on a moment like this that Stephen is going through, I went through, after my ordination, after my graduation, and then my ordination and my installation, and what was handed to me was a towel with my initials. You'll see that hanging there. And I was informed, you finished seminary. You have undergone the trials of ordination. And now you have been installed. Welcome to leadership in Christ's church. You are now qualified to wash feet. You're called to be a servant. So, Stephen, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts from a passage of Scripture about leadership. And I kind of want to speak to Stephen, but I want all of you all to listen because all of you here at some place or another are engaged in leadership. And hopefully this will be helpful for you. It will also help you to know how to pray for those who are in the ordained leadership of not only ruling elders, but also in particular teaching elders. Hopefully this will be of some help to you and encouragement to you, as well as picking up some things for your own leadership. But as we start, I want to give you two words, Stephen, and I want you to remember them because I'm going to come back to them at the end. Here's your word. Thick and thin, okay? Thick and thin. You can reverse it if you want to. Thin and thick. I want you to remember that. And I'm not talking about a hamburger at Hardee's. That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to remember thick and thin as we walk our way through these matters of leadership. And where I'd like for us to go is a text that actually I have had the privilege to walk Stephen and there's about 18 young men that I meet with on a monthly basis in mentoring for the gospel ministry. And, um, and we've been through the text that I have in front of you, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And we've gone down into the various qualifications that are there. And we've looked at the qualifications, but that's not what I want to spend the time on. Number one, we don't have the time for it. And number two, I simply want to do something else. I want to give you the framework of the qualifications of the leader. Not just the qualifications. I want to give you the framework and see if we can have a distillation of that that gives us some insights about leadership. So look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. And, uh, and I'm going to pick up just reading uh, at, verse, um, at verse 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 7. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it, he desires a noble task. So let me read that again. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, literally that means a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. So the man that we are, that God has called to be ordained and installed on the pastoral staff as an ordained teaching elder has been under, has not only gone through his training, but he has been examined by the presbytery. A commission of that presbytery is here to represent the presbytery in this service. And what he has been examined, he has been examined on the, uh, he has been examined in the areas of his life that have been uh, revealed here. There are, if you go through and count, there are 17, uh, 17 qualifications that are listed in what I just read for you. Interestingly, 15 of them deal with character and conduct. Only two deal with competency and gifts. He must be able to manage, and he must be apt to teach. Everything else is character and conduct. That's why Paul will also say that while giftedness is important, godliness is much more important. And so there is your first lesson on leadership. Godliness is more important than giftedness. I am not saying giftedness is unimportant. This St. Paul will also tell you to stir up, fan the flame of the gift that has been given to you. We need to constantly be growing and developing the spiritual gifts that God has given us to use in the gospel ministry as leaders. But what you learn immediately is that godliness is more important than giftedness. Two competencies are mentioned. Fifteen qualifications of character and conduct are being affirmed in this text. That's why I am grateful for a recent overture that has been given to the PCA that calls us and gives us a whole paragraph on how to how examination committees. Because I, just honestly, in our denomination, and I know it's true in many others, when we put a man through the, through the trials of ordination, we almost always focus and give great attention to content. What does he know? Does he know his theology? And that's right. We ought to do that. You can't preach what you don't know. And so we need to make sure that he is within the bounds of biblical confessional Christianity. But what's interesting to me, we've almost spent almost all of our time with verbal and written exams and oral exams. We spent all of our time in the area of content. But many times such committees spend very little time about life and character. 
What is the man when nobody's watching? What is the man when the lights have been turned out? What is the man? Circumstances do not dictate your character. They reveal it. And when we falter, they become the opportunity to refine it. So the first lesson I want you to see is that godliness is more important than giftedness. The second lesson I want you to see from this about leadership is leadership is aspirational. It is aspirational. Go back and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Leadership is aspirational. Now, let me give you a third one because I want to talk about these two together. It is not only aspirational, it is also inspirational. Now, did you know the call to leadership is very much like the call to your conversion? When you became a Christian, there were two callings that converged in your conversion to Christ. One was an external calling. You know what we call that? Evangelism. Somebody, by the Spirit of God, brought the gospel message to your mind, your heart, your eyes, your ears. That's external calling. I heard that external call for years and years and years. But at age 21, then came the sovereign hand of God. And there was not only the external calling that was inspirational, there was an internal calling that was aspirational. And that is, he gave me eyes to see and ears to hear. You know, so many times when I am, we've got new members that are coming in, and the new member will say something like this, um, will say, Oh, I just became a Christian. I grew up in a church, but I never heard the gospel like I heard it here. Why, I've just really first heard the gospel here. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor. I always tell pastors, when somebody says that, who's becoming a member of your church, don't get excited. Because you've got young men and women who grew up in your church that are telling another pastor the same thing out there somewhere. And what I'm saying is this. It's not many times. Now, I understand some people are raised in churches that the gospel is not preached. But perhaps it's like me. I was raised in a church that the gospel was preached. I just didn't hear it. I had no eyes to see, no ears to hear. That's what we call internal calling. And that's when the Holy Spirit gives you those eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, what happens in conversion also happens in leadership. There is an external call. How can they go if they are not sent? That God's church communicates An external call in the power of the Spirit of God. We believe the gifts have been placed within you. And then there is an internal call. Paul confirms this with this phrase. Woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel. 
So it's aspirational and inspirational, the external call and the internal call. So leadership is not only marked by godliness, which is more important than giftedness. It's marked by aspirational. One aspires to that ministry. And it is marked by inspiration as well. There is the internal and the external call that takes place in the life of a believer as God is moving that person into life and ministry. So I became a Christian when I was um, 20 years old. And I became a Christian, and the Lord very graciously brought me from death into life. And when I became a Christian, guess what happened the next week? Now, let me say, I became a Christian in a small Presbyterian church. And if you are young, you're enthusiastic, uh, somewhat of an athlete, somewhat of a reputation, and you become a Christian at age 20 in a small Presbyterian church, what's next? You're the youth director. That's what's next. So I got an external call. You're going to be the youth director. And so I started working with the kids. And then people started saying, we think God's called you to the ministry. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Y'all have got the wrong address on that one. But that is what the Lord begins to do. Sometimes the external precedes the internal. Sometimes the internal precedes the external. But to lead in Christ's church, both must be in place. So number one, godliness is more important than giftedness. Number two, the man does not seek, I'm sorry, the office does not seek the man. The man seeks the office because he has been called externally and internally by the hand of the Lord. Number three, number three, leadership is work. Leadership is work. And it is work that can't always be scheduled. Leadership in Christ's church is being ready to go to work continually. Look at the text. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine, what? Work he desires to do. Leadership is work. And that's what God has called us to give and to, and to give ourselves to. Let me give you another one from the text. Not only is leadership work, but a leader in Christ's church. Now, please get this. A leader is not an office wearer. A leader is an office bearer. You don't wear the office and the title. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, what is he aspiring? Not the office to wear it, but the work of the office to bear it. That's what he's been called to do. And let me give you one more from this part of the text. And then I'll give you two more and we're done. And that's, this one is, uh, I think, is, um, is very, very important. Leader, uh, well, let me put it, let me do it this way. Salvation is free. Discipleship costs. Leadership 
will cost you everything. Leadership will cost you everything in Christ's church. You can't negotiate it. It is a full commitment whereby we are, let me use Paul's language, I have been poured out as a drink offering. Paul did not see his life of leadership in Christ's church as a burnt offering, but as a drink offering. In a burnt offering, you've got ashes left. In a drink offering, you've got nothing left. You're poured out on the altar of love to Christ, who poured himself out to redeem you. Now I want you to do one more. I want to do one more, uh, two more things, and I want to do it very briefly. Uh, and here's the first one: the rest of this text that I read to you, that the man must be above reproach, and then he gives these qualifications of what it means to be above reproach. Fifteen of them deal with character. Two of them deal with competency. And as you go through those, those are amazing studies. I commend them to you. They're wonderful studies to look at and uh, very enjoyable. Each one of them is just jam-packed. And obviously, we don't have time to do that. But I do want you to see an order here. Look at verses 2 through 3. If any man be above reproach, he is the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Do you see the listing of those gifts? They all deal with personal conduct. Then he says, he must be able to manage his own household. In verses 4 and 5, he says, he must be able to manage his own household. For if a man cannot manage his own household well, how can he manage the church of God? His very children are under submission. So here is this glorious picture of a man above reproach in his personal life, a man above reproach in his family life. And then what does it say? He must not be a new convert. In other words, his reputation in the church is not, Mr. I've come to Christ, now let me take over. No, he's got a track record. Can I just say something? This is where we make a gigantic mistake, and I see it week after week after week. Some celebrity comes to Christ. Some football player comes to Christ. Some athlete comes to Christ. And the next thing you know, we give them a platform to start pontificating about Christianity. We are doing them a disservice. They need, like Paul, go to the wilderness for three years. They need to be trained. Why do we put people on platforms based upon what they were in the world? No, where we've, now I'm more than happy that they've come to Christ. And I anticipate them having a great ministry. But I love what Chuck Colson did. He went to R.C. Sproul and he said, teach me. And he refused the limelight that was being given to him. Teach me. People are going to ask me questions. I have no idea how to answer them biblically. Oh, he has an idea to answer them. Most leaders have got the gift of gab. But he doesn't know how to answer them biblically without being trained 
in the Word of God. Even in the midst of adversity and to understand the Word of God in its fullness. So he says, you're to be above reproach in your personal life. You're to be above reproach in your family life. You're to be above reproach in the church. And then he says, a good reputation with those outside the church. My first congregation was in Miami, Florida. It was Pinelands Presbyterian Church. Uh, we had about 50-something people, and uh, there were no children except my three children uh, that were there. And, um, and this, and, I mean, I loved it. I mean, folks, I mean, I got there in January, and I'm standing on a golf course playing golf on January the 7th. It's 82 degrees. I'm in my shorts, and there's no humidity. Somebody's got to do this for Jesus, and I was ready to do that. It was a challenge. One good flu season, I was out of a church. Average age was 69, and the lady that had figured that out had been 59 for about 15 years. So that survey was suspect. And God did a great work to give us this multi-ethnic, multi-cultural congregation. And I, um, I still hear from it today. And they were actually going to close the church down when I came. I said, well, look, let's give us a shot for six months. And the Lord did a wonderful work and for His praise and His glory. And I thank Him for that. So Pinelands is there, and Pinelands is doing its work, and I thank the Lord for all that it is doing. But I inherited five elders. Now, that was interesting. There were only 11 men in the church, and five of them were elders. And when I met them, um, of the five, only two knew the Lord. Obvious that I mean, it was just without doubt they knew the Lord. The other three, um, I don't think they knew the Lord. Now, the convenient thing is they were all named John. So I had first, second, third John. They just didn't know the Lord. And I went out one day uh, evangelizing, and I visited this house, and I was sharing the gospel, and this guy was really open. And I kept sharing the gospel to him. And as I shared the gospel with him, he uh, he just seemed almost ready. I felt like I had Nicodemus in front of me here. And uh, then he turned and uh, he said, um, he said at that moment, he said, uh, did you say Pineless? I said, yeah. And he said, and then he named one of the Johns. Does he go to that church? I think he goes to that church. I said, yeah, he's an elder. My goodness, his face got red. He stood up. I thought I was going to be in a fist fight. He put me outside the house and said, you can just get out of here. Christian, are you kidding me? I wouldn't go to a church that has him as an elder or even a member. You know, I realized that one of my elders did not have a good reputation with those outside the church. My goodness, if the government goes and asks questions about people before they entrust them, should we not do that investigation as well? Above reproach. Now, I bring this out to you because I want you to look at the framework. Can I go back to Miami? I went to a Christian banquet at a place called the Hotel Fontainebleau. And the reason it's called the Hotel Fontainebleau is because it's a hotel with a, a, a blue fontan. It's got a blue fountain. And this water goes up. And it lands in a laver, overflows to another one, overflows to another one, and then recycles. And I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, that's kind of the Christian life, isn't it? The streams of water flow into you personally, 
And then from you flows rivers of living water as it comes out and then overflows into your family and then into your church and then into your community. A leader is a man of priorities. I can't make an impact in the community without an impact in the church and an impact in my family. And then I need to start with me. And your personal life leads to your family life and that leads to the church ministry and that leads into the community. And that's the call that we've been given to. That's the call we have. So I know you're going to get a charge in just a moment, Stephen. I'll just finish with this. I'll give you a charge. Thick and thin. I'm going to tell you one of the things that uh, leadership in the church is going to cost you. It's going to cost you sleepless nights. It's going to cost you introspection. It's going to cost you disappointment. Many times the people you pour the most in, all of a sudden they're not there. And everybody will take you, don't, tell you don't take it personally, but you will. You just need to know how to deal with it personally. And that's thick and thin. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, then you can have a thick skin and a thin heart. If you don't develop a thick skin with a thin heart, it's just a matter of time till you develop a thick heart with a thin skin. And the answer is not therapy and technique. (laughs) The answer is stay fixed on Jesus. Your leader triumphant. And he'll lead you into leadership for his bride. Father, thank you for the moments that we could be together in your word. Would you now help us as we set aside this precious trophy of grace that you've called to gospel ministry. And we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader. Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.